You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I was born in San Luis de Cordero, Durango, a state shaped like a human heart in my grandmother's home in the shadow of church bells and into the hands of a midwife. The whole family helped with my birth. My paternal grandmother, Mama Rosa, was the first to hold me. My mother cuddled me, her firstborn, in her arms, while my maternal grandmother, Nina, took the placenta and wrapped my umbilical cord around it. Tio Delfino, a short, wiry man, dug a hole in the backyard. He buried my umbilical cord under the cactus and ocotillo shrubs next to the afterbirth of my tios, cousins, aunts, and my father. Grandma Nina shoveled dirt over the hole. My very placenta, Nina and Tio Delfino later told me, would tie me to this land forever, a shriveled root to affirm that no matter how far I went, one day I would come home. One day we would all come home. I couldn't imagine a morning not waking up to my mother, Erlinda, singing along to Jose Alfredo Jimenez or Javier Solis on the radio. The music, La Media Vuelta, floated through my open window. I can still see her outside, the shadow of her splashing water, at her flowers and plants singing to our neighbors, who would say that when my mother sang, even the rooster stopped to listen. Women also shuffle the, the street every morning with buckets of water to moisten their cake dirt walkways, tamping down the dust, and they did so with a skip in their step, con mucho más gusto, as they listened to my mother sing. Alfredo Corchado is the Mexican bureau chief for the Dallas Morning News. His new book is Midnight in Mexico, a reporter's journey through a country's descent into darkness. Thank you for joining me, Alfredo. My pleasure, Rick. This is a fascinating book, and as I read it, what struck me as most interesting was that the construction of the book, the way you put together and woven together the different strands of stories and the different stories themselves, some of them buried, some of them above ground, reflects in a sense, I believe, your understanding of Mexico, of being so many knots tied together. You know, I I think what I try to do and, and when it hit me what I was really, what my goal was, uh, was to be a human being. Um, as a journalist, you, you're used to being on the, on the sidelines and you're used to covering you know, you're, you're the one asking the questions, asking how people feel, what they think, etc. And my editors kept insisting that uh, they wanted the personal story. I guess it, it really hit me when I feel like like millions of Mexican-Americans in this country, we, we really carry the weight of two countries. And I think that's that part was the most difficult part, was trying to really feel and understand what Mexico was all about. And, and, and one, I mean, one of the things I did was I tried to write the, the book from both sides of the border. And I found that when I was on the U.S. side, that's when I would miss, miss Mexico. And when I was on the Mexican side, I would miss the United States. And, and that was, I think, a really important practice to keep, you know, go back and forth, go back and forth, and to try to get it at what my homeland was about and what my homeland, adopted homeland was all about. 
And this book, too, is really you investigating your own identity, I think. And I, that's a fascinating investigation to see as we watch it unfold. Within you, within the writing itself, this seems to happen. You know, it's, it's, uh, the backdrop is, is the, the drug war in Mexico and trying to find out who would even think of putting a hit on you. But I think you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, my personal search was, who am I? Um, I'm this guy with, with an American brain and a, and a Mexican heart and one who is rejected by Mexicans because I've spent too much time in the United States and rejected by Americans because at the end of the day, I'm still Mexican. And trying to figure out who am I in this, in this, in these two countries at, at this time. You have 35 million Americans with, with roots in Mexico. But I think we're still trying to find out where we stand. Uh, can we be this, this bridge between two countries? And so there was a lot of, um, people think it's funny, but there was a lot of, uh, a, a lot of music, a lot of soundtrack, and a lot of tequila to try to get at that question, you know, my identity. And there are times when I think as a Mexican-American, you, you, you feel like you're less than one. I actually, and, and perhaps because my mother was always so adamant about our Mexican cultural language, I mean, I've always felt like that's been a huge advantage, you know, being more than two, being American and being Mexican, and a little bit more, in a way. Uh, it also interested me to see, <clears throat> one of the things I think you do fantastically well in this book is give us a pocket history of Mexico, especially in the, the recent years. And it's really a revelation. I've lived within shouting distance of Mexico my entire life. I never really knew much about the politics or the way it was put together. And I think this is a fascinating and really concise and clear history. Uh, as one of the strands in this book, did you develop the strands separately and then weave them together, or did you kind of write the book as we read it? You, you, I wrote it as you read it. It, it almost became like a diary for, for myself. In fact, uh, when, when I turned the book in, the most shocking thing was sitting in December of last year in, in New York City, and they show you the first galley. And you, you put up, you know, in your hands, you go, oh, my God, this is going to the public. This was my diary. I mean, this was something that I did every morning and I, and I wrote as I try to understand what had happened to Mexico. I, I, the key to a lot of stuff was, was I had an incredible support cast. Um, I had arguably probably the best historian in Mexico, John Womack, who insisted uh, that there be enough history. And he would tell me, look, Americans, as close as we are to Mexico, just don't get Mexico. And even if you put a little bit of history to just kind of put things in perspective, and I say it in the book very clearly, this, this is not a historical account. I mean, it's more of a journalistic view and as an American and as a Mexican. But I think I, I try to put just enough to help Americans understand Mexico, put it in context, but also to take advantage of John Womack's knowledge. I mean, he's uh, he wrote the book uh, on Emiliano Zapata, which is still a classic. And, and so there were parts of the book when he would say, you know, inject a little more history. It was funny because you, you would have your uh, the, the Penguin people say, inject more of the personal. Other friends, inject more of the journalists. Uh, but John Womack was very much, 
put a lot more history. Americans don't really get Mexico. As close as we are, they don't get Mexico. Well, that's certainly true because for me, for example, I always thought that the PRI was was and always had been just a political party along the lines of what we in America have as the Democrats and the Republicans. That's to a certain degree true. But what's also true is the PRI is a style of government by committee. It's it's kind of hard to grok and really bizarre, but I think it goes to the heart of why Mexico is the way it is today, as you explain it in the book. Right. I mean, autocratic, semi-authoritarian, uh, but they had a gift, and and I think they're they're trying as much as they can to try to recapture that. I don't you know. That's I think the big story for journalists in the next six years: Can Mexicans really get away from this paternalistic, pre-gift uh, of you know of just making the Mexicans think it's okay, father is back, you know, el papá regresó. Um, because they they really did control things through committees. If, if they couldn't change your mind, they would co-opt you. Oh, you guys, uh, uh, a bunch of disgruntled teachers, we will create a union for disgruntled teachers, you know? I mean, it, it was, um, and there's some art to that, I think, you know? Uh, oh, yeah. I, I, people often look at the pre and look at Chicago, look at other political parties or other political movements in, in the world. But the, I think the pre had it down. And it's interesting now to see how, you know, every now and then you get reminders of that, that maybe they're going back to that. We'll see how much society has changed and how much the pre has changed. This book is really also at heart based on a series of threats that have been made against you throughout your journalistic life. And one of the things you say in here is that threats are just a way of communicating in Mexico. Yeah, you know, I people say, well, why did you start with the threat? And I started because I think to this day, it made me understand the, the lack of rule of law in Mexico. And it also, there's a part of me that's still frustrated, anger, because when you see that the threat was made against an American journalist, I mean, even though I'm, I was born in Mexico, I'm now a U.S. citizen, but you see the, the difference. You see that, that there was instant protection or an instant effort to try to protect you. You don't see that with Mexican journalists. I mean, they, <clears throat> you know, you talk about courage. I mean, these guys are the ones that are, that are, that are courageous. They're there on the firing line. Uh, some of them have been forced to censor. Some of them have been killed, kidnapped. But um, threats are a way of life. I mean, it's uh, it's something that uh, my driver Samuel taught me, and Samuel is in the book. Uh, and he's and he, and you know, I would say, Samuel, what do you think of this threat? What do you make of this threat? And he would just kind of look at me and kind of shrug and say, "It's the way we do things." You know, just this morning I call my uh, my stepdaughter's boyfriend and I threaten him and blah blah blah, and it works. You know, this is this is what this is work. This works in Mexico. You know. Uh also, early on, I think on the first page, you say, uh, quote, uh, John uh, D. Feely, a diplomat who's your friend, who says that stories heal you and others. And there's a large degree of that in the way you tell the story and the way the fact and the fact that you actually tell this story. In, in a large part, the, the book is an argument between mother and son. And it's Mother telling you, we took you out of Mexico. We sacrificed everything we, we, we had, we loved about the homeland. 
to get you out of Mexico, to make sure that you became someone in life, why would you want to go back? And it's son trying to prove to his mother that Mexico can be more, can be much more. So you have this clash of idealism and my mother's realism. Um, John Feely is part Irish and Italian. And I, when I would tell him this, he absolutely understood what I was going through. And he would always say, it, it's painful, right? It's painful. It's painful to know that, you know, that this American idolism that you have will not solve everything. And that in the end, you were probably wrong. Maybe your mother too. Maybe it's going to take a lot more time than you thought. So oftentimes when I was, when I was writing this, I feel like it was a healing process and, and a process to come to terms with just how difficult change is. You know, it, and, and I think there's a part where uh, the U.S. investigator says it's, you know, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen when Mexico says it's going to happen. Not when any other country, not when any other, no matter how great the intentions are, Mexico has to decide that it's time. It, that's one of the things I think that uh, makes this book uh, so powerful is that it puts us so much inside the the country of Mexico and inside the people and inside the struggle um, for the soul of the nation and a lot of this uh, the change that you're talking about it came around when Vincente Fox was uh, elected so talk about your relationship with Fox because you were the first man to interview him once he was president it was actually funny I mean this is a uh we're near the Central Valley in California, and, and so this was like the big turning point. Uh, I had known Vicente Fox when he was governor of Guanajuato. Actually, when he was a candidate, he lost, and then he became a candidate and won. So I had a long relationship with Fox. Also, Fox's uh, region, uh, there, was a lot of, there was a lot of migration between that region and North Texas, and we had a pretty good relationship. When he um, was campaigning, one, one of the first Mexican presidential candidates to really, really penetrate the Mexican-American community in this country, the, the immigrant. Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas had done some of that, but Vicente Fox really went all out. I found that fascinating. And, and I followed him on the, um, it was this trip from L.A. to the San Joaquin Valley and on to Sacramento. And I noticed that he increasingly was using the word hero. You guys are heroes. You know, immigrants are heroes. And I just thought, wow, if this guy really thinks we're heroes, he ought to give this Mexican immigrant the first interview. So I put him on the spot uh, during an interview. I said, listen, you really think we're heroes, right? He goes, yeah. He says, well, then prove it. You win, I get the first interview. And the people around him were pretty uncomfortable, you know. But he, to his credit, said, hecho. Uh, we were doing uh, the Dallas Morning News. We were doing polls at the time, the presidential election. He says, but you have to give me the results before. I said, yeah, I'll give you the results, and I'll give everybody the results. Now, to his credit, he did come through. And I think, I, I think Fox, before 9-11, was trying to change the relationship between the um, immigrants here and Mexicans there. And you have, to kind of, you have to, I think, really give him credit because in the end, you do have to build that bridge between immigrants in this country, Americans in this country, and Mexico. Had 9-11 not happened, you know, maybe something more would have happened. There would have been, I think, a lot more awareness um, 
But I mean, I always think of that story. I, there were some relatives of mine who came up for the book reading, and, and it was funny, you know, we were talking about that, and, and Fox going through the valley and people standing outside and waving at him. You know, you know um, the the threats against you are, are such an interesting part of this book because I as I was kind of going through the book, I realized it, it really is a big part. Uh, it's been a big part of your life since 1994, and you've been in Mexico now for close to 20 years. Um, as an American, and uh, as one of your colleagues told you, uh, that on one hand, being an American reporter makes you much less likely to be a target for threats, but then he reminds you that you don't look American, right. and that's a problem. <clears throat> well, that was actually the uh, the U.S. investigator who um, kind of put it very much in blunt, you know, terms and very in great perspective, but. Again, I think when when you're in Mexico, uh, you learn that that's part of the game. Uh, but one thing is being picked up in a, in a cab, and you know this was during the Mexico's difficult, difficult days when there were kidnappings and uh, taking you to ATM machines and with, forcing you to withdraw money, etc. But when when you 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 begin to deal with organized crime, it just takes it to a whole different level. And at first, I kept kind of shrugging it off and thinking, okay, well, this is just part of doing, you know, reporting in Mexico. But another thing is that when a long-trusted U.S. source, an investigator, calls you and says, look, three names came up, they're going to kill an American journalist, and I think it's you. That stunned me. It floored me. And your first instinct is to run. You know, get on, get on the next uh, airline and, and go, to, go to the United States. But it also hit me that you know you have family on both sides of the border, and you have uh, friends and loved ones, and I think that's why I stay in Mexico, or at least for, at least for the first few days, to try to investigate whether this thing was true, and if so, could I, through multiple contacts, try to reach out to the cartels and try to say, hey, it's nothing personal. I'm just a journalist. Uh, but as they pointed out. Um it wasn't necessarily the cartels who were after you, and this is where things start to get really interesting and uh, uh, exceedingly uh, scary. It, it, it does, because I think there comes a time as a journalist, it, uh, when you're covering Mexico, when, when you begin to understand what your limitations are. Uh, we had just written a story right, before, I mean, right after the threat. I think it was three, four days before the, the threat came describing this peace pack between government and the cartels. And the U.S. investigator had intelligence, had informants to basically describe, you know, there were so many government officials and so many cartels that it was, it was difficult to, separate, to know who was who. And that's when you, I think you begin to understand really the, the underlining problem in this issue is... is Understand legality and illegality. Understand who stands on what side. Um, and it's not necessarily good and bad. I mean, I think as a journalist, you have to understand and you have to recognize all the shades of gray. And a lot of these shades of gray have to do with the two economies in Mexico. There's the above-ground economy, which 
I mean, if we were, when we as Americans step back and look at it, you've got oil, you've got a lot of land. I mean, that's a pretty fun, rich country. It, beaches. Beaches, I'm, hotels, it's a lot of tourism. It's a great place. And then you have the underground economy, which is, to you quote, losing, what, $50 billion a year? And, and growing. I mean, that is really the, the big issue in Mexico. I mean, uh, President Peña Nieto, to, to his credit and the credit of his administration, I mean, they're trying to do this whole fiscal reform, trying to bring everybody out of the shadows, if you will. You know, kind of like the United States, uh, illegal immigration over there. It's really this booming, booming underground econ- economy that, uh, and it's really it really started in the 1990s. I mean, that started, but really began to really grow and, and rear its ugly head. And, and I think that is one of the problems that, as journalists or, or as Americans, we we don't pay that much attention to because at the end of the day, I mean, that's really the source of the, of the bigger problem here. People who don't feel like they, uh, they, they find the opportunities and so they have to do their own thing. And oftentimes it ends up uh, <clears throat> part of the organized crime. You know, you walk the streets of Mexico City and everybody's selling something, whether it's CDs or this or that. But a lot, I mean, that comes from the, from the underground economy. And, like it or not, in many ways, we're, we're supporting that. You know, uh, one of the things that I found particularly striking about this book were your visions of uh, the Zetas. Um, this is a really interesting uh, group. So I'd like you to talk about how, how they came about, who they are, who they started as, who they became, and what they are now. The Zetas start off as, uh, well, the, the original members, some of, the, some of them were trained by U.S. Special Forces. And the whole idea was to, was to train elite forces to take on drug traffickers. Boy, this is the, the, the Mexican version of bin Laden. Uh, very much. <laughs> and um, one of the um, leaders of, of the Gulf the leader of the Gulf Cartel, Osir Cardenas Guillén, reaches out to them, or reaches out to one of them and says, okay, so what's the deal? You guys are gonna come after us? And he goes, yeah how much are they paying you? And the guy just, you know, doubles the salary or triples the salary. There are different versions, but offer them a lot more money. This guy recruits 35 members, and they desert the special forces and become essentially the bodyguards of Osir Cardenas, uh, who at the time was one of the most powerful cartel leaders. And we're talking about the late 1990s, maybe 2000. That's how the group started. And, and their mission was to clear the um, La Plaza, which is kind of the, um, the corridor for illicit trade in, in the state of Tamaulipas. And one of the big goals was to try to take over uh, Nuevo, Nuevo Laredo. That's when you started seeing things become really messy. Because, I mean, they were, they were and if you talk to people in Nuevo Laredo, they'll, they'll say, you know, it happened in, in August of 2000. I think it was 2004 when they just showed up with AK-47 and 50 caliber machine guns and started shooting daytime with grenades and so forth. And that was a big game changer. Over time, these guys became their own force. I mean, they, they separated from the Gulf Cartel, created their own paramilitary group. Um, they didn't have the contacts to Colombia for the cocaine or... Other countries, so they started um, other venues, you know, other other things to do, if you will, 
extortions, taking over smuggling routes, uh, kidnappings, piracy, prostitution, to the point that today I think less than half of their profits comes from illicit drugs, and the other half comes from all these other things. Siphoning uh, oil, you know, Pemex. Uh, I mean, they steal billions of dollars from Pemex. And so when you look at, at the last 12 years in Mexico, the centers are really the ones who changed the game. Uh, I think the, the Sinaloans were much more Sicilian model, much more business-like. Let's just get the drugs across. These guys were, let's just control territories. Um, I, as a journalist, whenever I'm in Tamaulipas, right away you feel the tension. I mean, you feel you have uh, lookouts, alcones, you know, watching you. I mean, they're great at human intelligence, great at knowing who's there, uh, are they reporters, are they rivals, etc. Um, and they will, you know, shoot you before they ask any questions. I mean, that's that's their mindset. And these are the guys who I think uh, forced uh, the Fox administration, later the Calderon administration, and the U.S. side to say, wait a minute, <laughs> these these are some really bad dudes, and and they're and they're changing the whole dynamic in Mexico. Now, one of the things that I hadn't realized was that <clears throat> these guys got their start moving marijuana up but in the drug wars of the early 1990s when the bush administration cut off the east coast uh, routes um, then the colombians hired them to bring the cocaine up through mexico this is a the, the sinaloans mm -hmm. and uh, and other cartels uh, the golf cartel too um but yes um yeah the the whole route was really colombia to Florida, South Florida, and it was going through the Caribbean. When uh, the administration of, uh, I think it was Ronald Reagan, who basically forced the the, the shutting down of, of the Florida route, and people started, I mean, the Colombians started looking at Mexico. And the Mexicans said, no problem. I mean, the Mexicans basically introduced to the Colombians the whole FedEx mindset, you know? Give us the stuff in the certain less than 24 hours. And if you talk to <laughs> really? Colombians, no, if you talk to the Colombians today, they will tell you how shocked they were. I mean, here are Colombians telling you how shocked they were that the Mexicans could do this so quickly. And they would just make a couple of phone calls, and the high was just opened up. And it tells you, I mean, I think that tells you how deep uh, the corruption is in Mexico and how, how much they had penetrated the, the institutions, the system. I mean, they had enough people to make this happen. Uh, I mean, I think they could give uh, FedEx some classes on how to, you know, <laughs> how to ship your your merchandise and make sure it's in the Bay Area in 24 hours or, or, the, or the Dallas area. You know, it's so interesting, too. The various deals that are made in this book, there's always kind of deals between the governments, between the cartels. Uh, and I'd like you to talk about this kind of notion of deal-making, how this is, it seems one of the central themes of the book. Well, it, it started with the, uh, with the creation of the, again, of the Sinaloans. And I think one of the early founders, I mean, they uh, was the bodyguard of, um, of the governor back in the state of Sinaloa. And that became kind of the model. You know, you, uh, you work for them. The, in, in essence, the, the pre, I mean, think of the pre as the referee. 
you can you can you can do all this. You can you know serve the American market, uh, the consumer market, but don't don't make a big mess out of it. You know, don't kill people along the way. Don't terrorize communities along the way. Um, that was kind of the the and and it's interesting. Uh, just a couple of years ago, I think one of the old pre leaders came out and essentially confessed that. Now he had to take his words back within twenty four hours and say, "Well, I was." I misspoke, you know, <laughs> but that's really what the, what the whole model was. I mean, they were in cahoots together. We use these routes. You look the other way. We get some profit, and no one really gets hurt. You know, um, one of the things that I think is interesting too is that it is in part of your family history. Your father was a bracero, and this, and you, I think, speak you know, kindly towards that program, towards the way it worked in both Mexico and America? I speak kindly, and I know there's a lot of controversy mm -hmm. about the Rosero, and I know, it, I mean, it, it ended, I think, on, on, on a bad note, but for me as a kid growing up in, in Durango, um, I didn't really know I had a father. I just knew that there was a man who would come once a year from California, stop in El Paso, buy some Tony Lama boots, and show up in in San Luis de Cordero. And to me, he was my my Santa Claus, you know, the man who brought the boots and who spent a month or two and partied and had put music and we had food and etc. What I look today at as a journalist and I'm I'm covering these communities in Mexico, I see a lot of abandoned abandoned places. And I see kids who don't know who their fathers are. Sometimes they don't know who their mothers are. Uh, so it, it, it's a whole different situation from the one I grew up in. So you ask Mexicans, what do you want from the United States? Or what, what do you want American lawmakers? You know, and I say, look, we just want the, the free flow. Not the free flow, but the, the migratory panels to, where people can come back, come back and forth. Where when it's November or Christmas, towns come back to life and that's not happening as, as they used to I mean either because of immigration policies in this country or because of the danger of, of Mexicans from here from the United States going back to to Mexico so the result is um, communities that you know you show up in January or February because this this you know the parties are still going on I mean they're dead and and so when I think of that time and when I talk to my father and people from his generation, there, is, there are these fond memories of we can come and go. Uh, and it's interesting. I mean, it, oftentimes, if you get lucky as a reporter, you, you go to communities where you have the Canadian program in place, the guest worker Canadian program, next to the, you know, the, the, the current situation in Mexico. And the Canadians are much more vibrant. They're much more lively. Because the Canadians, you know, they do the same thing. They send Mexicans to Canada for nine months. It gets too cold, and they're back in, in Mexico. You know, you used an interesting word in, in that, uh, migratory patterns. And I think that that's a fascinating vision, and I think really a helpful way to understand this, that people do have migratory patterns, just like everybody, every other kind of creature on this earth. And to help understand that, that's a great vision of what needs to be done. Maybe it's not easy to implement in 
government policy, border policy, national policy, international policy. But having that vision to begin with, I think, is essential. You know, Rick, one of the interesting things about covering migration is, is, is seeing how we're really talking about labor markets, m migration labor markets. And, 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 and yes, it's, it's the pattern. Uh, there are towns in Mexico that you visit, and they produce a bunch of plumbers because they go to Dallas or they go to some city in Texas and they like plumbers. And so it's, 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 it becomes like your trade. You want to be a plumber because you want to work in Dallas. There's a fascinating community in Coapla, Jalisco, uh, where people want to become restaurant owners and cooks. And they started uh, dozens and dozens of restaurants in the Northwest, Seattle, Portland, Idaho, that, that whole area. And you go there and you ask them, you know, where are you from? And they'll say, Cuatla, Jalisco. And it's traced to one lady who, who was the first one, the pioneer, and then she started, she taught her kids, and then they taught other people. And that, you know, that's something I don't think Americans understand. I mean, that, that uh, as one told me the other day, he says, you know, I, I talk to high school students, I talk to college students, and, I, and the first thing out of my mouth is, how many are losing jobs because of me? Because I want to be a waiter, or because I want to wash dishes, or because I want to have a restaurant. He says, you know, these kids, they, don't, they just say, Go, please, please continue doing what you're doing. We have no, we have no illusion. We have no plans to do that. It, it also uh, interests me that in terms of the way you put the book together, I'd like you to talk about uh, creating the characters in this book because you create yourself as a character, uh, a man who's divided and, and haunted but also driven to pursue the truth. Angela, your partner who is like you, been been in this business for 20 years, your informants. I talk about creating this cast of characters, including some pretty wild people like the, the gentleman known as 40. It, um, that was one of the hard things and the biggest challenges. I think the first draft of the book, we had over, over 50 characters. Uh, and that's called having a great editor. <laughs> we came back and said uh, it has to be less than 10 and preferably a lot, you know, less uh, um, main characters. You, know, you can have small sub-characters. But it really, I didn't really have a special plan. I mean, I didn't really, when I went back the second time and the third time, it was really about the narrative and how people fit into the narrative. One of the things I did with every character uh, because it, it's it's a nonfiction book, and I was concerned about two things: was accuracy and security. So I wanted to make sure that anyone who was in the book, anyone who played a key role in the book, had the chance of reading what I was writing, to make sure that they felt safe. And we actually hit a, a roadblock in in February of this year when some of them, I promised them, if forty is, hasn't been captured by February, you have the right to opt out. He obviously hadn't been captured by then, and they read their lines, they read their quotes. You know, I wanted to make sure that this is how I remember it, this is how, how I wrote it. Um, and all these people said, give us 24 hours. Let us talk to our families, make sure that they're fine. And they came back and said, hey, you're putting your name on this. 
we're there because we're, we're also tired of, of being censored or we want Americans and Mexicans to know what's happened over the years. So they, you know, these are characters that, again, were kind of evolved around the narrative. Angela is, is a very, very private person. And <clears throat> I had to make sure that, you know, again, she felt comfortable with everything I wrote. Um, I think my, I'm the most probably the most difficult part of the book was <clears throat> having my mother relive the the, the family tragedy mm-hmm. and taking her to Durango and going back to that you know the backyard where where my my sister drowned and then we're walking back to where we took my sister and you know those those things I mean <clears throat> I think were some of the most difficult things you know was, was taking my parents through the route what made them leave for the United States, walking to the church where we left on the bus and et cetera. Um, I, I think I knew before I started, I mean, when I started writing the book, I, I kind of had a, an idea of who the characters were going to be. Uh, and some, you know, didn't make it. I think most of them ended up staying. But um, but not the 50 or something that I had grand illusions of. <laughs> You were talking about uh, security being important, uh, and I'm wondering if, uh, having written this book, you feel safer just by virtue of the fact that it's a high-profile piece of armor, in a sense. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I. That was one of the things that um, I quibble with a lot, mm-hmm. and I talked to enough people who said this book will give you more protection, and I believe them. But there are not there are many many days now after the book is out that I question that, and yet people have, have reminded me that I crossed that line a long time ago, even before the book came out. I mean, as a journalist, you know, you kind of cross that line. Um, but I can't sit here with with, with a straight face and, and say I'm going to be in Mexico forever. You know, I mean, I think it's almost like a day to day. There are days when I go, "Am I crazy going back?" Or, "No, I am going back." And I'm going to stay as long as I can. Um, it it the situation in Mexico has not really improved dramatically as many of us had hoped. So I do have my moments of doubt, you know, to this day. Um, I think <clears throat> I think at the end of the day, I mean, I if I ever leave Mexico, I want to do it on my own terms, and not because I was forced to, not because of of a renewed death threat or, or something like that, but because it's time for me to leave. You know, one of the things I think you do very well in this book is convey the sense of paranoia that's absolutely natural when you start pursuing these kind of investigations. When you come, there's a, a point in the book where you come into possession of a DVD that's absolutely terrifying. It's like something out of a horror movie. I was about to have my tacos and uh, a source um, had called me before and said, we're sending you something. But the the actual package came from uh, a newspaper in Seattle, or right near Seattle. I think it was Tacoma. Um, and in it was, I, th- I think it's now known as the first video, where you had uh, four people and one of them, I mean, gets a, really a shot, a shot to the head. And that's when you kind of feel like the Middle East has come to Mexico. That was that. Uh, to this day, I mean, it was um, the most shocking thing I had seen. 
you know, not not that I haven't seen something similar, but that it happened in Mexico. That brings to mind another question. I mean, uh, California is intimately involved in this book. That's where your your father came. That's where you came from. I'd like you to talk about the role that uh, this state plays in uh, in Mexican policy. And it, it interests me too that one of the things that I uh, one of the statements you made that just jumped out at me is that uh, the Mex Mexicans would like to see assault uh, rifles banned. Yeah, I mean, California, uh, it, it's my formative years here. And I think this, and this is also kind of where I wanted to become a journalist. I, you know, it, as we worked in the fields, uh, my parents were members of the United Farm Workers Union, Cesar Chavez, and working out as a 13-year-old and having a TV crew come up to you and asking you, you know, about sanitation and, and working hours, et cetera, the sense that someone cared about my voice gave me, wanted to understand or hear what I had to say about this or that. I think that really kind of instilled in me <clears throat> a sense, you know, wouldn't it be great to be a journalist someday and, and reconnect with my roots, my language, uh, but also go back to Mexico. So, so California is very, very present. In fact, anytime I'm in California, I feel like I'm about to, you know, cry with emotion because here I am as a former farm worker, high school dropout, and then you come back with the book. You know, and that, I mean, that, I think, says a lot of, about my adopted homeland, the United States. Assault weapons, I mean, that is, that's the thing that just fascinated me about one of the other characters in the book, you know, Paisana. And Paisana uh, works as, a, as an informant for the U.S. government. And one of the things she, she does is she carries guns. And I'm always fascinated by, you know, why would you participate in something that's killing Mexicans, some of them innocent Mexicans, and you know, and she'll tell you very bluntly, "Look, I'm jaded. And I just don't think Americans care about Mexicans dying. Plus, I want my green card." And that's just, you know, it, 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 to this day, it, it floors me that uh, that she would feel that way. I mean, um, this is somebody you've known for years. Somebody I've known for years. Someone who. who I think, you know, when I talk to her, I mean, really cares about her countrymen. But she's come to this conclusion that the Americans thought that this was a way to find out who who the key criminals were. And yes, there were some screw-ups, some people got killed. Uh, but I don't think Americans really care about that, you know. And that's something that, uh, that's when you start questioning, well, wait a minute, I'm an American. You want to be an American? I mean, I don't know. It's It's this whole... You know, parts of this book, that's why I keep saying it, 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 it also, <clears throat> you have to consume a lot of tequila to try to understand, you know. Well, I think that's the virtue of this book, is that it doesn't offer easy answers. There are no easy answers. At this point, things are still very unsettled on mm -hmm. both sides of the border. I, I'm wondering, too, at, we are seeing here more and more in the United States a move to make marijuana um, medical marijuana legal. We've seen a few states legalize it. What kind of impact is that going to have on the people who are illegally producing marijuana in Mexico? I always tell people I, I, I wish this debate would have started 40 years ago. Uh, I mean, here we are, 100,000 people killed or disappear. Will it have an impact? Sure. I mean, we're talking about billions and billions of dollars. It will have an impact. My concern is that long-term Mexican criminal groups, organized crime, they will find something else. 
Um, and, and, and we've seen that over the, over the last few years. You know, it used to be mostly illicit drugs. Now it's kidnappings, um, <clears throat> prostitution, piracy, smuggling routes. Mexican cartels are very powerful. Institutions are very, very weak. They will find a way to replace <clears throat> marijuana. And, and we're seeing that already in, in parts of the, uh, of the border, like Ciudad Juarez. I mean, during the height of the violence, the smuggling of, of marijuana actually declined significantly because there was so much disruption, so much chaos, but the violence continued. And, and so for Americans to think, okay, we're going to stop this, and Mexico's going to go back to becoming a peaceful country. I don't, I, I don't see that happening. I mean, I, I, I see an impact, but I don't see an end. Now, uh, Calderon embarked upon a well-known uh, war against the cartels, and he didn't fare so well in that war. And I'd like you to just talk about this kind of, one of the things I think is at the center of the this book, and I think for you as a person going back and forth, is this war between pragmatism and idealism, between love of country and the need to survive just economically. You're talking about myself as a... Both, and, both, and Mexico, I think. It's, it I think a lot of people, when Calderon made that decision, um, I, I don't think I was the only one who, who thought, okay, someone finally gets it. Someone has the, the pants, as they say in Mexico, los pantalones, to do something about it, to, to take on the cartels, to um, write something that's obviously very wrong. As a Monday morning quarterback now, while I, I still think that history will judge Calderon better than he is today, um, I do think that um, <clears throat> during the, the six years, many of us kept thinking, wait a minute, you don't even have a strategy. And if you do, you have this based on the idealistic, the good, and the bad. But you really have failed to see the shades. And there were so many shades as a reporter that you often have to trust your own gut feeling as to who you can trust your life with. You know, Because I mean, you're talking to sources, Mexican officials, uh, people who are on the shady side, U.S. officials. And at the end of the day, I mean, you, you lock yourself in that hotel and you think, what the heck did I just do? And who are these people? And I wonder whether Calderon went through the same questioning. What did I just do? I unleashed this war with people who, who are not, you know, I mean, one of the things that I, it's in the book, it's very telling is when the American officials will come to Mexico to meet with people they were going to go to war with or, or, or develop a strategy with, um, many of them um, came away thinking, why don't these people come together as agencies? It was separate meetings. They didn't want to be around one another. They didn't want to see one another. And I think that tells you the level of mistrust that was at the very beginning and I think throughout the six years. And I don't know if that ever really changed. Do you think there's hope for that to change in the future? Do I think it's going to change? <clears throat> Do I see hope? Um, I don't see hope necessarily in the Mexican government. I mean, I see hope in the Mexican people and in their resilient spirit. And by that I mean it's it may be the old pre-back, or it may be the pre-trying to go back to some of the old practices, 
but I also see a very different Mexican civil society. Are they different enough? Have they changed enough to keep the government accountable? I think that's the fascinating story for us as journalists to cover the next six years. I mean, I know that's something that I'm, I'm just lasered in, you know, to try to see the, some of the advances that they made in the, in the last six, 12 years. Can they keep that up? Can that continue to flourish? Can that continue to grow? That, to me, is, is really the big question. I've been speaking with Alfredo Corchado. His new book is Midnight in Mexico. Thank you for joining me, Alfredo. Rick, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.